how they feel when they walk into your shop. I want to just have a little chat around how the world around us affects the decisions and judgments that we make. Also, did you know that your logo is absolutely terrible? That's right, you heard it from me. It's feedback, and it's the type of feedback that perhaps you didn't want to hear, but you needed to hear in order for your brand to grow. So we're going to have a little bit of chat around this as a number of other topics. So let's get started. Welcome to Brand Scran, a mini series brought to you by Divided by Brand. Brand Scran talks about brand strategy, and I've got an expert on this mini series called Alistair Gladstone. And we're going to explore some incredibly valuable and some incredibly interesting topics to help you as a business owner understand more about the value that brand can bring to your business. Join me, Dan O'Cock, and Alistair as we co-host this special five-part podcast mini-series focusing specifically around topics involving brand, brand identity, and brand strategy. So here we are, it's episode three of Brand Scran. I like to think that we're getting a bit better as we go through this series, this mini series. Um, And as always, on the other end of the line, um, in cyberspace land up in uh, Leeds, is Alistair. Are you there, Alistair? Hiya, Dan. I'm here. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I was listening back to episode two, and I, and um, you left too long a pause, and I, I can I, I even sensed my worry that you disappeared. Um, there was like it wasn't much. It was like maybe two or three seconds, and it was your idea of a joke, and I, I, I panicked my listening idea back. Of a joke. <laughs> so- Suitably rebuked, and I'm here um, quicker than I was last time. It's good to hear. And we are, again, a week on, um, week three, or episode three, as I think I corrected last time, because we just don't know how often or the space between people listening to these episodes is going to be, Alistair. We could be, you know, a year into this content being out there, and um, a week means nothing to those people. True enough, um, but it flies by, and you know everything. I think from our perspective is nicely linked. So if people want to eventually listen to everything back to back, it should work really well as well. Absolutely. So this is episode three, and, and like Alice just said, if you haven't listened, um, there's episode one and two. Go back and get listening because we are following a type of narrative, really, and well, not a type. We are following a narrative, and it's really in terms of a strategic brand process that's what this series is all about and now we hit we're hitting episode three 
We're talking about ugly babies. Not literally, but we are going to talk about the importance of underpinning strategic decisions um, when it comes to product development. Uh, And that includes things like research. So we're going to... I feel like this is a technical episode. No, not a technical. uh, It's a kind of... It's an important one, Alistair, isn't it? It's really important, in 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 my opinion. Yeah, I mean, we we've um, we toyed with names for this episode. Um, I think we've alighted on the name, um, which is a quote I heard, and I'll read it out. The quote is: "The plural of anecdote isn't data." Um, I think we've alighted on that, and there's a good reason for that because we really want to talk about research which does i suspect you know does work better when it is technical when it's handled as as objectively as possible yeah now it's interesting because i i nearly i thought should we go with that title and should we not and i part of me thinks that we should have just gone with ugly babies (laughs) i think it just was a bit more to the point um but i think you like to have those little um the, 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 the more cleverly written ways that have meaning. Did that make sense? I feel like I'm struggling to make sense of stuff this morning. <laughs> we, we've got we've got two names for the for the pod, I think, haven't we? And um, at some point, probably fairly soon, we should uh, explain them both. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the topics that we're going to cover, we've said um, that plural of anecdote, again, ugly babies, nobody, things that nobody wants to hear. We're going to talk about cognitive bias, which is just sounds like something you might find in a lab, but it's brain, it's brain stuff, isn't it? Um, do your research, going to go into that. Focus groups, do they work? And then we'll end with a bit about data, differences between good and bad data um, and how they can affect what your brand has so why don't we get started with this topic around the plural of anecdote um and you know i think i don't i still don't know alistair we're deliberating it even though i'm recording it um i think it's a ridiculous title for a show (laughs) at first again like with early episodes i had no idea what it means so it feels like a recurring theme that i we spend the first three minutes of each show me <laughs> playing the fool, which I clearly am, um, saying, "Why have you called this episode that? What? What? Why is the meaning behind it?" Um, a light on that, Alistair, with a part with your wisdom. Um, well, I'll I'll tell you what it means to me. Whether it's particularly wise or not is for you and everyone else to uh, to to let us know. I suppose um, I. So, so you know what? I think we're back in the pub, Dan. Hmm. I, th- I think we're back in your local with a pint of mild. What was your local again? It was the Huntsman. Me? That was the one I chose. We're, we're in the we're in the Huntsman. Um, the log fire is probably on because it's getting towards that point of the year, and our chief executive is um, is in the pub with. You know, maybe he's one of his employees and, and maybe he's a couple of people from the local town that he knows and everyone is telling him or her how great the business is and how great the brand is and and you know all this information is coming is coming hard and fast and 
um, we know that brands shouldn't be shouldn't be dreamt up in the pub. We covered that in length in in episode one, but in episode one. But we we also need to differentiate between what it is we want to hear, what it is people are telling us because that's what they think we want to hear, what is subjective feedback and as opposed to all of that, what is data-led, what's research-driven. Um, so I think that that phrase, which I, I heard on the radio once, it was on my way home from work and, and someone just dropped that in and I thought, you know what, that is, I, I see I see and hear that happening so many times. You add a number of you layer anecdotes on top of each other, and all of a sudden, because there's a few of them, it must be right. Therefore, I'm going to trust it. I'm going to make business critical decisions based on that. So, is it a bit like patting yourself on the back, um, or lots I, of I, other people patting you on the back? Yeah, I, 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 I think it is. I, I think it is, and. And in fact, you know, that, that kind of, that, that's the reason why we've got the alternative name also for the episode, which was, you know, much more to the point, ugly babies. Mm. And, and <laughs> again, you know, this, so I didn't hear this on the radio. I came up with this myself, but it's the principle that you never hear, you know, you've got a, a mom or a dad pushing, pushing their baby along in the pram down the street and someone stops and has a look in. You never hear them say, ooh, what an ugly baby that is. That's an ugly baby. You never hear it, do you? You always no. hear people, because babies aren't ugly, of course. You know, no. quick, uh, you know, quick disclaimer in there. But, but really what's happening there is that, again, people tell you what it is that you want to hear. Yeah. And that's what um, I think is that nobody wants to hear derogatory comments. Yeah. And I want to... I'm going to throw this one in there, that whole derogatory comment, that whole not people not saying what they believe or what they feel. Is that a British trait, Alistair? Mm. You know what? I would have to do the research and data, Dan. I know you'd, I knew you'd give some kind of, you wouldn't before, just go in. <laughs> before, I came, before I came back on that. But it, it's, it's a great point. Because the reciprocal is, you, you know what? I think derogatory feedback is good, as, mm -hmm. as long as it's derogatory for re derogatory is a bit of a strong word. It is. Maybe, I, I was going to say challenging, or yes. you know, um, feed, yeah. it's feedback, but in the right way. Yeah, I, you know, I I think business owners owe it to themselves to be open to the the negative stuff. The the um you'd call it constructive criticism mm -hmm. um you know all of this all of this type of stuff um either anecdotally but preferably not because because often that is that is the you know that where the good stuff is there is that phrase isn't there feedback yeah. is the breakfast of champions and um i don't know i don't know we need to find out who said that and and, and quote them properly but but yeah, it's it's. I think it's. I think it's very true. And that is another food-related um, oh. quote. And why we've gone for brand scrum? It's just 
It's just a match made in heaven, Alistair. It, it, it is from... It's I mean, salt yeah. and vinegar, innit? I mean, come on, let's just roll with it. What other yeah. combos can we fit in in a partnership? Let's, uh, let, let's not get back to no. fish sweets, obviously, but... Um, yeah, bre- breakfast of champions and fish sweets. If you haven't listened, just go back an episode and listen. Forty-two minutes in, I know that because I was literally crying with laughter this morning, having listened back to it again. Fish sweets. That's all I'll say. Um, before we leave this topic and move on, I wanted to actually make an important point here about um, listening to feedback and, and as a mm. business and as a brand being able to um to listen to that type of feedback i've worked with with especially the the larger businesses the larger brands where there is there are a number of people involved and i'm talking about small teams where there is a marketing team involved um there's perhaps a department manager you know there's a, there's a general hierarchy and eventually ultimately there's that kind of c-suite that sits there but for me it, it, it's really important in that situation to bring in an external expert somebody that is not related to that business that will come at it with a completely fresh set of eyes and the opinion that isn't blinkered by you know five years of of work within that business um it i've had feedback to that effect and i know it's it's really really important would you agree with me alistair uh, yeah, I would. Um, I see this. Um, I see this in, in, in different sort of not just in, in research as well, but training. You know, training works really well, doesn't it? When if if you know you've got you've got a you've got a company and you're going through I don't know change management. If if you have the head of the company standing there and and taking those training sessions, or a middle manager, or you know whatever, then then, then personally, I, I I think there's a difference between that and the expert coming in objectively with all of all of their expertise. You know, they, they've got one job to do, therefore they should do it the best. They're coming in and, and people sit up and take notice, um, I, I think. So, yeah, I think there's a lot to say for that. Yeah, and often when you hear somebody else explain something, then... You know that isn't part of the business then then things fit into place whereas sometimes within a business there can be that that competitive um edge where you perhaps don't listen to someone else as as someone else's idea as much as you should because they're higher up than you you know you don't want to see them get better or that's probably going a little bit deep but i, th- I think it exists out there in some businesses that um mean spirit Shall I say? Have you come across that? Um, I, uh, I I tell you what I'm thinking when you're when you're saying these things. I'm, I'm thinking about and sorry, it's probably not exactly what you were looking for, but I think it's important making the distinction between working in the business and on the business. And I think that's a mindset. I th- I think when you have um, an external person coming in. I, I think as a business owner, and I've been there, you, you have an opportunity to step out, don't you? Mm. To, to change your mindset. 
And, you know, you're not involved necessarily in, in delivering that change program or that research or whatever it is. And therefore, you're kind of full. You're forced to being, um, to adopting a different mindset and, and thinking much more objectively about the business. Uh, uh, you know, I think that's, that's really key. And business owners don't often have the opportunity to do that because, you know, because business is hard and, and you know, often people are at the you know the grindstone for, for you know the entire 50 odd hours of the work yeah. a week yeah exactly and so I th- I'm, I'm 100% with you on that absolutely it's not I know you're saying it's maybe not where I was growing but it was that's exactly what I was trying to get across there um working on the business not in it and I've heard that a couple of times over the last few weeks I think people are becoming I say people I think business owners are becoming much more aware of the value of that now. And, and thankfully, I think that's down to social network stuff and the posts that people are putting out there and uh, the number of coaches and training schemes, plan things that are mm-hmm. out there that, that help um, business owners to to stay on point. Um, I think it's it's... That's one of the good things about social. You don't have to listen to political stuff. You can use them to... Help you guide your business. Yeah, absolutely. Podcasts even. Well, yeah. Look at this one, flying. <laughs> <laughs> but no, so listen, I think that's a great um, open topic, that one. I think we've covered quite a few um, points there that I wanted to, to reach into. Um, and we didn't, did we offend anyone with that ugly babies thing? Nah, we didn't, did we? So We'll, we'll have to try harder. Yeah. We don't want to go soft as we get through these episodes. So come on, let's get in. Let's have a look at this second topic because, again, every time I read through these topics and I kind of give myself a little bit of time to read through, make some show notes, and uh, prepare, I always look back at them and go, "What? What the hell's? What? You're so clever. It's too much." Uh-huh. Maslow, this topic, right? All I've all I've got typed here is Maslow's hammer and cognitive bias. That I, I could have, I feel like I could have copied that straight off an exam paper. <laughs> <laughs> and then my note underneath says, "This is pretty deep, but at the same time, ultra fascinating." Mm. <laughs> and it is because I had to do a little bit of googling, and the only bit of um, my knowledge. At, extends into Maslow is the Maslow is Maslow's hierarchy of needs mm-hmm. um, if anybody doesn't know like I didn't um, Google it and have a look um, but I don't know what Maslow's hammer was or is mm. explain Alistair um, I, you know what I, I don't I, I've been presuming it's the same Maslow so <laughs> Right. In one hand, he had a hierarchy of needs, and in the other hand, he had a hammer. Okay. Um, either that, or it's you know a much more common name than we think it is, or it's his brother or son. Um, Maslow's hammer is is probably best summed up in the phrase: "If you've got a hammer in your hand, everything looks like a nail." And nice. What that means is, well, I mean that that kind of expresses the principle of what we know as cognitive bias you've got and i do this all the time i I bought a new pair of glasses recently because i'm you know what dan i'm getting on a bit 
my eyes off failing us. Um, but before, you know, whilst I was thinking about what glasses I wanted and, you know, think, think about styles and what have you, it was like everyone I noticed in the street wore glasses. Okay. And I was seeing spectacles on adverts everywhere and, in you know, across media, social media and, and, and whatnot. And of course, it, it wasn't the case that there'd been a sudden outbreak of spectacle wearing in my local area. <laughs> don't think it was it was however the case that cognitively um i was you know glasses spectacles were much more the forefront of my mind than 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 usual and and that's cognitive bias that is you know that is maslow's hammer in a in a nutshell if if you're looking as far as research and data is concerned if you're looking for a an answer the chances are you'll be asking the wrong questions because those questions are ultimately going to lead you to the answer and again this is why there is such a an important distinction to be made when you're doing your research between objectivity and subjectivity and this again i think leads back to what you were saying down before about the external expert that that external export expert should not have a hammer in their hand the only reason why they should have a hammer in the hand is if the employer having um commissioned them has said has already said and i want you to find this result in which case <laughs> that expert should say I, I, I don't want the gig i'm sorry it's you know you're not open to challenge um, you're not open to change um you know i'm going to move on um so that's what's what that's about um and, and of, every time we listen to Al- alistair it, you do you've got this calming way of, of explaining stuff it was like you the on the other end of the line you're a bit like the human google uh, at the minute for me because i mm. i googled it uh, cognitive bias as a term so i'm going to save any listeners the <laughs> the typing effort of doing that and I'm going to explain what Google threw back, which is basically what you've just covered. So a cognitive bias is a systematic error in thinking that occurs when people are processing and interpreting information in the world around them and affects the decisions and judgments that they make. Cognitive biases are often a result of your brain's attempt to simplify information processing. Yeah. That is off our website, <laughs> but uh, it clarified it for me, bef- and then you did it in an even better way. So I hope that's been insightful for people. What I wanted to do was take that, and, and I asked myself the question: Well, where does this position your brand in terms of cognitive bias? And I started saying, well, visually. From a design from a design perspective, um, I can influence the audience or the customer through um, sounds, color, imagery, photography, etc. But brand experience carries through to emotion and experience, right? And I, my brain then got work and said, well, I actually could think of an example. Um, for me, brand-wise, a brand example that hinges around smell. And I thought I'd bring this up, and I hope it fits. 
and it doesn't go down the whole fish sweets route. But someone told me, and I think it was a bit of an urban legend, this, that Subway, the popular sandwich shop, actually um, engineer the smell for their stores and they pump it out into the streets so that every subway store has a smell. So as you're coming up to it, 100 yards down the uh, street, you see you go, that's, there's a subway up here. First of all, do you know the smell I'm talking about? Um, yeah, I've got a confession, Dan. Something you don't know about me is I have no sense of smell. <laughs> Fantastic. So, so, you're, so you're asking, you couldn't have asked the worst person. So, um, well, there's one of your COVID symptoms out the window. <laughs> no, no I, I, no, I have no sense of smell or well, taste. Um, Let me educate so, you then, Alistair. And what? I'm sorry to hear you have no sense of smell. Does it affect your taste then, did you say? I have no sense of taste either. No. That, that's why I'm wearing these clothes today, Dan. Right. Okay. A face for radio and clothes to match. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, there's a smell that wherever you are, as you walk up to a subway or go into it, you can smell and it's the same smell. It's not different. Whereas, you know, if you go to... Um, uh, let's think not going to give another bad example but you know perhaps pizza shops have a different smell to each other if, depending on what other fast foodies stuff they've got going but Subway has the same smell this was my point and um, I googled it today because to me that forms part of that brand experience it does make me want to go and buy one of their sandwiches if i'm hungry because i love them and i'll think well i smell it oh yeah i could just fancy it some way um now it turns out there was a chap called joel burrows and he has written it's a really well written article um and he investigated this and he analyzed this smell from subway i'm going to put a link to his article but I'm, I'm going to summarise it really quickly. He found out that the smell comes from the combination of baking their bread and the sweet cookies together on site. And that is what makes Subway have its unique mm. smell. But the point I'm making is that that smell as an experience basically influences um, my uh, my senses, but also my brain and my needs. Is that an example, Alistair, of this cognitive bias in brand action? Uh, I, I certainly think what you described there is part of brand. And I would, I would posit that every subway has to have that smell. Um, you know, in other words, it's got to be uniform right across all of those restaurants. And, and, you know, so regardless of where you are, you're in Leeds or Newcastle or wherever, if you're walking into a subway, you're getting a, um, you know, you're getting the same smell. So, so because that, that's part of their brand, isn't it? It really yeah. is. Like you were saying, you were using the word experience before and, and, 
we can only experience things through five senses. So why wouldn't a food shop want to use, you know, the, the sense apart from taste, which is most closely linked to taste? They, they, they would do. But does it go, does it, am I wrong when I'm trying to tie it into cognitive bias like that? Because it makes me think that I want a sandwich from Subway because I've smelt it. Is this, have, I, have I got, have I interpreted that wrong or right? I, I think that, um, I, I think that you, I think there's a slight jump of tracks there. I think that where I'm coming from is, is, is in research. So it's kind of, it, it's, it's making, so, so I think you have subliminally been led into Subway and I think other brands will, you know, do clever things with, you know, be it Starbucks with the smell of coffee, you know, or whatever it is. Right. I think what we're talking about here is making um, sort of strategic decisions based on good good information and bad information. And we kind of have to leave, as business owners, we've got to leave behind. So, so, so yeah, I think I gave the example in episode one of, of you know, a, a business I was helping through a rebrand and it got to the visual side of things and you know the, the, what they said was you know i'll go with anything as long as as long as there's yellow in it that's right well, well why yellow because i like yellow so so there is a decision which has been biased by a, a company's owner's preference the, the logo isn't for the company owner it's not it's it's for the market you know, if all you're going to do is to appeal to the company owners and there are two company owners, you're going to get two sales. If, yeah. you know, you're going to appeal to the entire market with your logo, which is just part of the brand, obviously, then then what colour does the market want it to be? Forget about what you want. Let's think about what, you know, what we think the market thinks that all of, all of those brand aspects should be. Absolutely. Well, look, we'll park it there. I've talked enough about smell. I thought I think it's quite a nice little one to include, even though it was a little bit off the mark. I guess now I, I yeah, think, think yeah, about yeah. it. But what you were just saying there about um, creating a brand for the market does lead us nice into this third topic, which is all around research and how important it is to do your research of competitors of your marketplace um, right the way through to your customer customers and actually profiling who they are. Uh, what they love, what they do, you know, sitting in their seat, you know, being them. And uh, I think that's something that people, you know, do struggle with. Business owners, like you've just said, have a challenge when it comes to to thinking like their customers. Um, but it, it, it's, in, it's important to understand what makes them tick. And I think the question I wanted to put to you, you first of all, Alistair, was if you've got a specific path that you follow when it comes to research, because obviously people should know by now that you focus very much on uh, that brand strategy. Um, And Mm. I think it it falls, I've got my own take on this, but I wanted to hear what what your path is that you follow when it comes to research. Cool. Um, I follow, um, I, I split research into three areas. Um, the first is competitor research. The second is market research. 
The third is customer research. Now, I haven't listed those chronologically necessarily. Um, I personally spend a lot of time on competitor research out of those three. I'm not a market research expert. I wouldn't claim to be. Hmm. I do think that understanding your market is, well, obviously, it's a huge part of of, of strategic decision making and there are loads and loads of brands that have failed out there or sub brands that have failed because that market research hasn't been carried out like you know classically bringing over the the name of a korean brand into the uk that makes that means something um vulgar um you know is, is a pretty obvious example of that um so, I, so yeah, competitors, market, customers, and I'm probably going to labour the competitor side of things in my answer really, Dan, because yeah. it's if if you don't know what your competitors are doing, and you don't know what they're good at, then how can you differentiate yourself from those competitors? And if you remember when we talked about brand optimization in the previous episode, one of those six elements of brand optimization was memorability, and memorability is is as much about differentiation than anything else. So I'll give you a little anecdote here about sort of competitor research. I um, I do a lot of networking and pre-COVID that would often be face-to-face networking. So you've got 40 or 50 people in a room and um, you get, you know, a minute or whatever to introduce yourselves and say what you're good at. And I, I, I kid you not, every week would have the same thing where you'd have the same trade you know, represented by four or five different people, four or five different companies, and they're all pretty much the say say the same thing, which was the reason why you should take us on is because our customer service is the best. And 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 then you know <clears throat> the next person in line would say the same sort of thing: our customer service is the best. And it's like, hang on a minute, you can't all have the best customer service. That just doesn't that that can't be the thing. What, what they've done there is is the, they've kind of relied on anecdotes, people saying, yeah, your customer service was fantastic. Mm-hmm. What they haven't done is find out exactly how they should be differentiating um, themselves. And, and it, it's a, as, as we previously said in this, you know, in this series, differentiation is a harder and harder thing to do because, you know, the space between you having your idea, launching your idea, and then a competitor copying your idea gets less and less and less so points of differentiation are really really hard to find so but it can be done sorry to it jump in there, sorry to jump in there Alistair but when you when you come across people that hit that wall and they give you an answer that basically doesn't set them apart so my uh, we're you know we're we're number one because our customer service is ace how do you then challenge that? Do you have to look at the reasons why their customer service is best? You know, if they're stuck on that being their differentiating factor, you know, do you have to then uncover what it is about that customer service that makes it number one? For example, uh, we pride ourselves on our number one um approach to customer service because every customer gets a free cuddly toy like fact is that what you do with them um, the why it's really it's a really good question so what so what i would do i mean the first thing is yeah you, ha- you have to find out whether that claim is authentic or not 
regardless of whether you're the best for customer service, is your customer service utterly outstanding? And again, comes back to brand optimization because one of those six points of brand optimization was honesty. Um, so is that the case or not? Or is that just some cognitive bias working its way into yeah. your you know, your your thoughts? Okay. The, the second thing to do is, is research the market as far as competitors are concerned, I think, because even if that is an honest claim, if I'm going to come back and say, look, you know, you've got a shop on the high street here, which is selling widgets, but you're saying you're the best, you have the best customer service. And bear in mind, business can usually only be qualified by three key prerequisites, which are quality, deliverability, and price, customer service being part of quality here. If, if I then find out by walking down the high street that four other shops selling widgets are also saying, we are the best in customer service. The chances are, even though that's an honest summation of part of your qualitative offer, it's not going to differentiate you. It's not giving those people on the high street a reason to come to your shop rather than any of the others. Absolutely. I love that. I think that's a good insight. I think people could take a lot away from that particular point. I've got my own take on it with research, Alistair, in terms of design more than anything yeah. because I started to think of this I thought well what can I talk around design research competitors there, and there is when I, I kind of put it in it's stripped it back and I thought well I do do research and for me it is competitor research but I look at a lot of the touch points that they have with a client so that if that business um, has a competitor how are they engaging where are they engaging with these clients uh, what platforms are they using and how are they presenting themselves on those platforms and that gives me little visual cues and um, lets me you know look at how that particular sector works you know it's that's that's the start of my research it's like an educational uh, journey as much as anything but another part of what i would class as design research which follows on from the competitor stuff is mood boarding and i think this is a, this is research because it takes a while it takes time to generate a style for a brand and come mm-hmm. up with a style and it's it's part of what I offer in my product in my process. Um, I def- I want to define a route visually to follow. Um, that's what the, the start of my process is all about. Um, is is finding out for myself and that client. I want us to both feel on board um, and ready to travel in one particular direction with a brand. And you can't do that unless you've done the research first to see if, um, you know, see how that, see how the market presents itself. But more importantly, the step before that, which we've covered in another episode, is all of the uncovering of, um, like, the personality of that business, you know, the, the, um, the style that it will, that best suits that business. And, the reason I do the whole research, do this mood boarding and bring myself and, and the client together is because 
there's two there's two purposes really that, that that happens and number one is to give that client a sense of direction and confidence before we even start to design we've got to both understand what we're striving to achieve to achieve you know whether it is to to make that brand number one in the sector um, or to launch that brand with the strongest um, position that we can do. So it's to give them that confidence and that sense of direction. And number two, it immediately, if I can get them on the right track, it immediately helps me to block unnecessary design noise, as I would call it, blocks it out. Mm. And then I can focus on that approach wholeheartedly. So the research of this mood boarding um, step by step, it avoids those like, um, it helps avoid panic stricken moments of doubt and hours of amends. So if if you put that groundwork in with the client, um, handhold them through and show them how you've arrived at that style, um, it brings everything in line and everyone should be in a happy place by the time we we get to designing logos and um, color palettes and, and fonts. So for me, the research of competitors and marketplace is hugely integral to that that initial taking that initial design step because I'm educating myself, but also um, helping that client understand almost my train of thought where I'm heading yeah. with this. And I want us both to be um, bringing that, like we want to be on the same track. We don't want to be disappearing off in different directions. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. Um, and I'm also, when you're talking, so it was really interesting. That's great insight. When you're talking there, I'm also thinking, is, is part of what you're doing there um, exposing people to things that they didn't know that they liked? Yeah, because that's, that's you know we, we kind of again it it's it speaks to cognitive bias it speaks to kind of you know sort of being blinkered or whatever but often we surprise ourselves in in realizing that actually who you know I didn't think I'd like that design or that color or you know that tone or whatever it is but when I see it in when I see it in out of context when I see it more objectively I, I realize I've got a slightly different response to it absolutely it's about opening doors for people and showing them what's behind them mm-hmm. cool. do you like this oh suit you sir <laughs> <laughs> something like that cool. so i hope everybody has found some value and hope you know if you're listening to this that um i think that's an insight into both our worlds in terms of brand um and, and how in depth we go with with clients to make sure that there's a lot to think about Alistair isn't there there's a lot of stuff it's good stuff and and so if if you've got all this stuff to think about with brand it's a lot to place on one person's shoulders isn't it and I think this next topic that we're going to go into when you talk about one person making a decision is that a good thing or a bad thing? And this, I want to talk about focus groups. Is it better for one person to make a decision or is it better to open it up 
to a number of people, mm. po- possibly close contacts, possibly you know a circle of trust within that business. I don't know. Do focus groups work when it comes to brand development, brand launch? What's your take on it? Um, I don't have an awful lot of um, of things to say about focus groups in specific. Um, I've never, you know, I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to be in a focus group. I think that would be quite exciting. Um, okay. But I haven't been, and I haven't used focus groups because they do fall into that market re- market research side of things, which, you know, um, there are experts out there for. But what I what I do know is, well, what I think I know is that more information is better than fewer less information, and um, and 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 you know, we aren't. We aren't Google, you know. We're not getting thousands, if not millions, of, of pieces of, you know, big data coming in, you know, every every, every second, every minute. Yeah. We're not in that sort of glorified position, unfortunately. Um, so I think there's a principle at heart here, which is the more you can aggregate your decisions over, you know, a bigger set of opinions a bigger set of data research than than the better and i think because I've, I've not really used focus groups before um nor have i been part of one so i'm not talking from personal experience but i just thought <laughs> likewise people could be listening going, what the bloody hell have they put that in the, in the podcast for but it, i think it's worth talking about it just to hear um Branding experts take on it more than anything. Um, when it comes to design um, and that term focus group, there's a phrase that that you, people have heard, which is like design by committee. And that would be like um, passing a design on to another, a, a number of people to get their opinion on stuff. Uh, and I've had it before um, in the past. Ooh, I like I like that idea and I like that one. Can you send me both of them and I can ask a few people? And they promptly take those two designs, post them in their business community Facebook, and lo and behold, they get 400 comments completely con- contradicting each other, conflicting what he thinks, what they think as a group, and it just ends up as an absolute shower of you-know-what. And so when I hear that term focus groups, to me, that's what I conjure up, which is wrong because I know a focus group is different. But I thought, well, I have to give my kind of take on a group and having a group work alongside um, as a designer. What what would that mean? Uh, And for me, because I've never really had that group there, I thought, well, I'll share, you know, my experience of working with uh, who I work with and how I expect it. Well, like a little mini focus group is how I would treat it. So if it's just one person in the business, um, that's my usual scenario that I find myself in. But at times, a couple, two directors, two business owners. And for me, the reason that they have myself there is because they're looking to me as the expert to guide them from a design perspective. So whilst we're this mini focus group, if you like, of three, 
they they're not a designer they sell uh washing machines they haven't got a clue they want me they've brought me in to guide them on that one but what i'm looking for throughout is for them to at times steady that ship because as a creative i want to push the boundaries um be a bit crazy you know i can be crazy alistair believe it or not um but sometimes you don't need to be and sometimes it's really easy to forget that the business owners understand their marketplace perfectly mm-hmm. um, and you have to listen mm-hmm. but you also have to challenge uh, in the right ways and for the right reasons and so that for me was like a micro focus group it's not quite a focus group but it's still having hearing both sides of the story and working to uh, the expertise of both parties so when i work it is a kind of focus group but it's just being sympathetic to that business as well as stepping up to the plate as that expert to guide them you think that's kind of valid around that topic yeah, I, 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 I really like how you've expressed that. It, it's almost, um, it, it, it's being a guiding hand, isn't it? It's, it's it, you know, you, you're absolutely right to make the point that business owners do know their um, product market, you know, whatever, really, really well. And, and we can't completely disregard that knowledge but it's also true to say that if you're that close to something, you might not be best positioned to make that decision. So let's kind of synthesize the good stuff that you know there and expose it to a little bit of, well, not a little bit of, but expose it to, to you know, a, a, a sort of a, a test of rigor, uh, you know, in terms of the competition, in terms of the market, in terms of um or all that other stuff in, in a in a challenging environment. And I think the best business owners and, and the best consultants can find that happy medium. Absolutely. So do focus groups work? Question mark. Hmm. In the right situation. There you go. Didn't even need to waffle on for 15 minutes. <laughs> we got there. I don't think it was 15 minutes. We don't use focus groups per se, but do you know what? I think if the situation arose, and I don't know what that situation would be, but it'd be where it, it didn't, where they didn't feel like they could answer the, the, the problems themselves and I wasn't positioned to answer that problem either. So I'm thinking about a very specialised niche marketplace, perhaps, um, where perhaps they've become clouded in their judgment i think focus groups could work used correctly and in the right hands i'll fair, go along with that fair comment i think so yeah. and i'm looking at the time we're doing all right alistair but we're kind of i think we're gonna we're not gonna be as um long on this fifth topic but it, we're on 50 odd minutes what are we on 51 minutes look so i feel like we haven't cracked enough jokes do we need to like have a comedy pause or something <laughs> I mean you've just done that thing where you've effectively said tell us a joke and obviously I feel like I need to add that because 
if somebody's just listened to this episode and they've got 50 minutes in, they're like... (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) My my mind's gone completely blank. I know. I don't even have a joke. It's when someone says, do you know any good jokes? Like, uh, probably. So, (laughs) I don't know, go back back an episode, 42 minutes in, Fish Street. If you don't smile, then don't listen to any other episodes. (laughs) No, I mean, that, that, that... Yeah, that joke was... Absolutely cracking. I know, and I I need to say as well at this point, cracking, cracking. I thought, are you thinking of the huge sea creature? Yeah, I was linking. I was saying (laughs) your fish food idea perhaps should be called cracking. Cracking. Would it be a a boiled sweet? (laughs) It could. could. (laughs) I love it. Look, fifth topic: um, data. The final part of this particular episode, um, and, and I honestly didn't know where to go with this topic. I mean, I had a little chat before started hit, before I press record. I was like, oh, "What's this topic? What am I going to talk about, Alistair? Um Because data and design are a funny old couple, as I've written. Um, design by data was what I thought I would pass a little bit of comment on. Um, do you want me? Shall I start with this one, Alistair? So that I think, yes, by all means, I think the, the subject matter is good versus bad data, isn't there? You know, what we've just discussed, I think, is a is finding a happy medium between um, the information that you bring into a decision, but then sort of chewing the data on that with research and, and coming to the best possible conclusion. But um, I think this subtopic is specifically just a bit of a caveat to say, you know, trust the data, but all always check it before you you make before you use it to make that decision. Yeah, good. A few bad eggs. That was something I wrote, which we'll come on mm. to. But I'll put I'll put my um, little stamp on this one by talking about I think, literal translation of data because I think you can design by data. So if somebody's if I'm working with a client and um, very specifically they need to engage with their clients through the website on their homepage because that's where they drive all their traffic every it's an online e-commerce store for example um their their ultimate call to action and what, what they want people to do is book an appointment let's say so i know if i'm visualizing that website um, and that is the data says people come to our website to book um, an appointment with us. That's that, we know that's what they want and that's what we need. So based on that data, as a designer, I've got to make sure that that is number one priority. And I think that even that even filters through um, to brand as well. So sometimes that data could influence. Um, how you talk to those clients and how that uh, how that language presents itself it's a it's a bit it probably sounds a little bit wishy-washy that but I think what I'm trying to get at is that data it can be important at the with, with the right um, campaigns or with the right type of business um, 
but understanding the data and interpreting it. Um, I think you've coined that or, or come up with that comment before we, we hit record about statistical significance. Tell us about statistical significance of data, Alistair, because you use data a little bit more than mm-hmm. me, I would say. Mm-hmm. I've got two things to say around this, I think. The first thing is we live in a digital marketing age. Therefore, we've never had as much access to as much data as, as we have right now. If you were to think about, I don't know, wind the clocks back sort of 20, 30 years, the, the, the art of getting reliable data back from the marketplace was really, really tough. Um, and, and getting enough data back was, was really tough. But, but now there, there, there are just no excuses, Dan. Let, let's, you know, let's say it how it is. There are no excuses for a business not to understand how the market is or isn't engaging with the touch points that they are using. That, that information is there. Mm-hmm. It's on Google Analytics. It's on social media. Um, and your marketing team, marketing agency, should be presenting you with those key metrics on a regular basis and, and you know, as a team drawing conclusions from it. So that's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is, yeah, I mean, th- this phrase statistical significance doesn't exactly trip off the tongue. But it, it's about making sure that there is enough data to draw conclusions from. Um, you know, I was banging the drum for not making decisions based on anecdotes and use data instead. I guess I'm also banging the drum for making sure that we don't use outlier data to, to help us with decisions. If, if we're running a, a customer, a piece of customer research, and we only get 20, 30 pieces of information back, then we need to be very, very careful about the conclusions that we draw um, from that uh, research because it would only take two or three outliers in those 20 or 30 for, for you know, to take us completely off beam. So, so, so statistical significance refers to um, a um, reliable um, amount of data in terms of its, its sheer uh, quantity. It was, and I'm going to I'm going to drop this off, drop this in just to show off a little bit. Napoleon Bonaparte, again, came out with one of my favourite phrases, was which was, um, "There is a particular quality in quantity," and and I think as far as data is concerned, then then that holds true. I love it. There you go. You can't end a show on a saying by Napoleon, surely, <laughs> but we are. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> Boom. No, I think I think it's a, I don't want to delve any more into this. I think you know people might fall asleep, but you know it's important um, to I'd say here a note of caution, really. But um, out of small amounts of data, you can get a distorted view more than anything. But look, I, I like to be all creative. I like to data is yeah doesn't. Actually, I'm saying that, but there's a, there's a guy, and I'm going to put a link. He's called Brendan Brendan Dawes, I believe, and he's an artist. I describe him as an artist who creates unique artworks um, around data. 
I'm not going to say anything more than that. I went to see him talk at uh, Birmingham Design Festival. He's now delved into the world of NFTs. Some of his work is absolutely phenomenally fascinating. He, I'll try and think of this one example. Um, he would... He went to a software company and they were, they just gave him reams of data based around, um, I'm going to get this wrong, but it was like incoming and outgoing calls, how many have had it, how many they had in a day. He took that data and turned it into art, like 3D rendered, crazy creative art. I mean, it was, it's it's abstract, it's brilliant. Go and check out Brendan. Um, He's flying with that stuff. So, you know, maybe data isn't that boring after all. Very nicely done. Do you like that? Yeah, yeah I love that. So, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring this episode to a close. Um, is there anything else that you want to kind of chirp in? I think I asked this at the end of the last one. Have, have we covered enough for you, Alistair? Is your your brain significantly be you know, tired of this episode now? Um, it's 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 full of great food. <laughs> Full of brands, Gran. I'm sated, without a doubt. So if you've been listening and you've enjoyed this episode or any others, don't forget to leave us a review. That would be great. We're going to enjoy listening back to some of the the comments if we can get them. Um, You can follow myself, follow Alistair, um, get in touch with us. We've got links in the show notes to do exactly that if you need to. Um, And I always round off by saying, you know, if you're not proud of your brand, then how do you expect anyone else to be?